Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. I'm sure you're wondering right away, why do you have a sweatshirt on in the middle of the summer? Well, the Jones family got COVID and uh, it has not been fun. We've had high fevers, shakes, the whole thing, but look, the show must go on and there is training that must come out for you, right? Sometimes we just need to push past the pain and really understand that um, in these moments, when we do what we don't want to do, because maybe there's resistance in the way, we can become an even greater form of ourselves. So I believe that fully. Now look, on today's episode, we got David McCreary. David McCreary has the law enforcement background. So he is a protector, just like you, who has the background in law enforcement. Um, he was a homicide uh, investigator, hope I'm saying that right, detective, SWAT. I mean, this guy has a story and I believe it is going to help you so much. He has such an amazing way of communicating. So if you're someone who you feel like you've gone through maybe some, some pretty serious things and you don't know how to process it, well, today's episode is for you. Welcome to the KO Podcast hosted by Kingdom Operatives. We are here to select, specialize, and send out leaders into their community. If you are a protector, someone who has a background in military or first responder, and you no longer have that structure, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, we will uppercut unbelief as we send you out to demonstrate the kingdom of God and the power that is in your presence. This is where we turn the hearts of the fathers back to their home. It is time to contend for tomorrow, today, because your legacy is waiting. I'm your host, Adam Jones, and it's an honor to serve you. Do you feel like it's ever been enough for you? Or do you feel like there's always something missing? Maybe some part of the story that you wish you could have done, but never actually came to came true. Yeah, there, there are. Yes, absolutely. Um, some things that I, that I, I feel like I, I, I came out of that career and you're right. I have a lot of things to look back on and, and say, you know, I was very successful at, and I had the opportunity to do a lot of things that not everybody gets to do, but there was still more. There was, there, there are, there are regrets that I've had to, to work out in, in my mind that things that I didn't do. And, and probably the biggest thing that I didn't do was uh, promote. Um, I spent too much time in special units through the middle part of my career, um, and and I didn't want to promote and go back to patrol, go back to midnights, uh, uh, you know, shift work and everything because I was doing all this cool stuff. When in reality, everybody around me saw leadership skills or leadership potential, and 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 would constantly be telling me, "Man, you need to be a supervisor. You need you need to." become an officer you need to you know we need we need a commander over this unit that's kind of like you and and I had a desire to do that and on the in the front end of my career I was kind of on a fast track positioning myself to do that um, not all of my assignments that I worked were really cool high speed low drag uh, tactical stuff some of them were admin stuff that was giving me experience as a, a super, you know, I was the reserve coordinator. We had a reserve unit, reserve police officer unit that had, you know, over a 90, over 90, 100 reserve officers at one time. And I coordinated the whole thing. I put on training sessions for them. I taught the supervisors that would get 
promoted, I did all the internal affairs investigations. I did a bunch of admin work that really positioned me very well um, for promotional exams, but timing seemed to constantly be against me because in the middle of all this, um, I went through a really ugly divorce um, that wrecked me. Uh, and it wrecked me because I had two little kids who were who were just getting drugged through the mud and I was helpless to try and protect them. And I, I, there's, a, there's about a two year period in my life in the middle of that, there's just a blur. I was beyond depressed and, um, and the, the prime opportunity of the promotional exam that came up was right in the middle of that. And there's no way um, that those things are so competitive. You have to spend about a year prepping for them and all of your, you know, off duty work is consumed with preparing for this uh, promotional process. And I was a mess mentally. So I missed that opportunity. And then a few years later, when I got remarried, it was like really important to me that I don't make my career, I don't make law enforcement, law enforcement the most important thing in my life. I didn't want to repeat the mistakes that I made the first time around. Um, and I shunned any opportunity to do that because I had now reached a place in my career where, where my assignments had me working, you know, kind of day shift with banker's hours and I was home every night. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to negatively affect the marriage and the new family that we were building. And so um, I, it just never worked out for me um, timing wise. And since my retirement, you know, we moved out of the state and, you know, I lost touch with a lot of those guys, but I would, you know, occasionally go back to visit family and I'd get together with some of my, you know, closest buddies. And I was having, I was having dinner with a, with a, an old friend of mine who's telling me um, stories about the current unit that he's working. It's uh, this undercover go after the, you know, do a whole lot of surveillance and then apprehension of the worst of the worst of the worst people out there. And I'm like, he's telling me these stories and I'm going, that's so cool. Man, I really wished I could have worked on in a unit like that during my career. And I started to, to, to say this sentence. I, I started to make the statement. My biggest regret in my law enforcement career and what I was going to finish that statement was with was with a, a, a was by saying I never got to work a unit like that, and he just interrupted me and finished it for me. He said, "No, your biggest, everybody else's biggest regret is that you never promoted, because we all needed to work under a supervisor like you." Ooh. And I went, "Oh, Damn. you're right. Dude, that, is, that is a bigger regret." So I do, I do have those, um, and and it has left me at. At times in my life, it, it, you know, I've had to struggle feeling like even though I had all these amazing things that I did, all these accomplishments that I did attain, it made me still feel at, I had to struggle at times feeling like I wasn't a failure. Man. Wow, Dave, I feel so uh, <laughs> connected to your story already, um, and I'm sure the people listening do too. So 
you might know this. There's, there's a book that I've been working on called Weapons of Mass Deception. It's based on a lot of what you and I have been learning about the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. And these weapons of mass deception, I'm, I'm pointing out three that really hurt me in my life. And I believe hurt many prior service men, whether that's a background from military, being a responder, ministers. I mean, just anything that identifies with this service, this mm -hmm. serving others, dedicating their life to service, and then eventually transitioning. And the one weapon of mass deception that you have hit on big time to start with is called the altar of impact. And what God has revealed to me is that there was a moment in my life, and it was a large moment. This was years where I sacrificed my family on the altar of impacting others, right? Uh, I was, I've been married for eight years, and um, the beginning of it was really, really great. And then that middle part, I was so driven by impact. It wasn't like a selfish desire, like I want to be famous. It was I want to help others. I want to, I want to make sure my life matters. I want to impact people. I want to show up early, stay late. You know, I, I actually went through promotion. So I became a company commander, but I didn't do all the cool tactical stuff you did. Right. right. So that, that becomes another piece where, Oh, I have this regret of what I didn't do. So I did, I don't have a deployment, which is why I bring people like you to talk about what is this actually like when we experience that, but also understand even when we experience it, it's never enough. Yeah. Even if we have combat, it's not enough because there's another, there's one we missed. Or if we, if we signed up for a branch of, you know, like law enforcement, but then we have a cool experience like you, but then maybe we don't have the promotion. So now we regret that. And I just feel this is such a deception of the enemy. It's part of his desperate defense to get us to not move forward in our life. I mean, can you relate to this at all? Does this sound like something that connects? Oh, to yeah. You? Yeah. Um, the uh, what did you call it? The drive of Im impact. The, yep, the altar, the, altar of impact. The yep. altar of impact. So, in the uh, first half of my career, I was very much driven by that. Um, I was I was putting in for every special unit that came that came out, regardless of of you know the hours the 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 work the shift work regardless of how it impacted the home i wanted in it because i wanted the experience um i would i would send myself at my own cost a lot of times to advanced trainings because i wanted the experience i wanted to position myself for that next really cool tactical unit um i i, I was driven to get on swat and uh, and and made it um worked my way through, you know, did a stint on an entry team and then decided I really had a, a desire for, you know, to be a sniper. I made the sniper team and that those, especially the SWAT era, I, I did about, I, I was on the team for a little less than 10 years. And during that period of my life, the SWAT team was my idol. It was the number one ultimate concern of my life was being prepared for that call out that you got thrown into a life or death situation and you had to perform or you or your partners or somebody else was going to die. I lived for that and I made it the most important thing. And I did that at the expense of and the detriment of, you know, my marriage and my, and my family and my first marriage um, did not survive. There are multiple other reasons, but that was one of the factors. And uh, 
you know, I kind of mentioned when, when I got remarried some years later, I knew I didn't want to make that mistake again. I knew I didn't want to go through a divorce again. I was still on the SWAT team at that time, and uh, and my wife had a really hard time adjusting to that. You know, that pager would go off in the middle of the night, and phew, I'm out the door like a lightning bolt, and she wouldn't be able to sleep for until I came home, and sometimes you don't come home for days, depending on the nature of the call. And uh, and I and I saw that, and and it's like I don't want to go this. I don't want this to become a merry-go-round. I don't want to come around full circle and destroy my marriage. I want my marriage to be the most important thing. And so I, I caught myself found myself not wanting to go anymore. The pager would go off and I didn't want to leave. And that's when I knew it was time to retire from the team. Uh, because if your heart is not in it, if you can't give 110% to a unit like that, you really probably shouldn't be on the team anymore. And, um, and so I, you know, I gave my notice to my commander and I said, you know, I think it's time for me to hang up my boots. And, uh, and my wife was really pissed at me. She says, you're doing this for me, and it's the wrong reason. Um, you're not ready. But I was stubborn, and I did it anyway. And uh, and then, I and then you know, then lived with that regret because I really wasn't quite ready. But I was trying to do the right thing. Wow. Man, that's, that's so – it's crazy how this hurts so many of us, right? Um, it's as if uh, I want to make sure I'm using the right language here. We are not being attacked by the enemy. We are the attack of the kingdom of God, right? And we come up against that desperate defense of the enemy all the time. And I totally believe that's the case. I also believe he can lure us in with distractions, with temptations, even if they are playing off of good motives of us. Mm -hmm. One of the best things he can do is destroy the family. Because when he destroys oh. the family, right, as you and I have learned um, from Dub, is when this happens – now you've destroyed stability, you've destroyed structure, um, and that's happening all across, not just the United States, but across the yeah. world. It's his main, main area, if you ask me, of where he tries to infiltrate. If, if I can hit the family, then the rest will deteriorate because there'll be no stability. So, man, the altar of impact for me, God, God woke me up through actually like some dreams and stuff where I had some nightmares, man. And I went and ran them by my wife and it turned out the nightmares were actually possibly going to be real. Right. And I could not believe how he gave me that warning call mm -hmm. to say, it's time. You got to catch this. Your family is your assignment, not your ambition. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's hard. Ooh, that's hard for guys who are, um, who gravitate to, the kind of careers or, or, or understand part of their identity as being that kind of that, that alpha male, that alpha male that oozes testosterone out his pores wants to be at the front of the line. He wants to be in the fight and he, he wants to feel that's where he feels like he's called. And what we don't, and I think, I think, and, on the one hand, that's important. We need people on those front lines, in law enforcement, in the military, in in you know first responders, whatever. But 
we need people with that same commitment, drive, and identity leading the household and keeping the family together. Yeah. That is really the first, um, that's the, that's the first arena of battle. Yeah. We've been losing that battle in our culture for a long time. And I think, I think what we're seeing in the world today is a reflection of that. Man, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm just thankful that God woke me up from it. But there were two other deceptions I had to get over as well, right? We could talk about those another time. But when I heard you talk about, you know, this, uh, it, it was never enough, no matter what you did, because I don't think, I think with our type of personalities, we want to accomplish it all. And that's just not how it works. And if we even remember just this kingdom principle that we are a body, a a member, a body member, right? A piece of of Christ. Well, then I can't be the whole body. Right. And and you can't either. We need each other. You know, in this in this example, I had really fast promotions and I had my childhood dream of flying Blackhawks. Right. But I never saw combat. And people go, well, why not? And, and sometimes if they're a civilian, I'm like, well, did you see combat? <laughs> they're like, no. I was like, well, you know, like, I don't think this is that relevant. But because sometimes people mess with me on that. But the other thing is, either way, we can't control our story. We're not in charge of the whole story. We're in charge of certain decisions. But like for me, you know, I'll make it real simple. I was called up for three deployments. All three got canceled. Like that's kind of the end of the story there. I just, that's how it works for my life. And eventually God said, that's the story I needed you to have because that's what I needed to use for this next stage. So I kind of want to go two directions. The first one, I would love to know from a kingdom man like yourself, how you believe God can use our background as protectors in this next stage of our life, maybe without a structure of the service. Like for you, law enforcement, right? For maybe a minister, it's the church. You know, maybe for a firefighter, it's the fire department. They don't have that right now. But God is constantly putting the story together, right? And he's converging these things. So what's, what has he kind of taught you in this stage of your life of how he's using that background, maybe from where you are now? Yeah. Um, you, you know, in, in any number of ways, I mean, one of, one of the ways that, uh, that I've, am feeling like I need to be used for that purpose, you know, redefining my, my area of operations. It's no longer out on the streets, you know, behind a badge. Um, but there's a fight in the home. There's a fight for the home, for marriage, for family. But in this day and age, oh my gosh, there has been such an attack on, um, on masculinity and, uh, male identity that, um, that uh, we need a concerted effort within, you know, kingdom-minded people to um, to to be a shining city on the hill. I mean, I, I started a Facebook group for men um, for the sole purpose of just going on a on a journey to to discover God's original design intent for men and how that should be appropriately expressed through through their masculinity, because it's confusing out there right now. Um, We're being attacked. Clearly, you look at society and um, and a significant number, a significant percentage of the population is drinking is drinking some weird Kool-Aid. 
and um, they're they're putting you know tampon dispensers in boys' restrooms because they they think males can menstruate and can you know have babies and we just can decide that you know we want to be a different gender because we just feel like it. I mean it's it's gone wackadoo out there and that and the the traditional male stereotype which can be taken to the extreme in a negative way um, is now just being like attacked left and right to be a strong man, to be a protector, to be a provider for your family. And that means more than just providing for financial security. It's providing, you know, security. It's speaking identity into your kids. It's, it's being a champion of your wife, not the oppressor of your wife. Um, and, and, you know, bringing your wife up, you know, onto a level playing field with yourself. Um, and uh, we, we just need a, an, an entire, entirely new, fresh um, education and example um, and, and leading other men, mentoring other men uh, in this area because there is just some craziness going on out there that, that I don't even begin to understand. And that's where that's where I think one of the one of our battlefields is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just threw up one of your quotes there. That's good, man. Be the champion of your wife, not the oppressor. Yeah, a big thing for me with really overcoming the altar of impact was realizing that I impact my like really my greatest ability to impact, and it's aligned to the assignment God gave me is my family. Right? Mm -hmm. um, no one else can step in and do that. So. When we talk about being the champion, I remember hearing uh, from uh, people in my life that, hey, you and your wife, you can be the champion of each other's causes, but you don't have to always have the same cause. That's correct. When you talk about a big breakthrough for us, whoa, we don't have to like the same things and do the same things. Like we can just champion one another. Mm -hmm. And champion doesn't just mean like, hey, I'm going to clap for you when you go do it, but hey, how can I really um, help you get better at this too? You know, so. Yeah, that's good, man. Um, well, one thing, Dave, that we talk about at KO, at Kingdom Operatives, is really identifying first with this identity of being a protector. Because if you get trapped by a past label, like I'm going to give you an example, prior service. I sometimes don't even feel comfortable calling people prior service because we're only referring to your past. Mm -hmm. and you and I both know in the kingdom, God refers to who we were inside of him already an apple tree is an apple tree before it ever bears apples, right? Like it's because it's in the DNA. So we're more than a soldier, a, a cop, a, a, you know, firefighter. I mean, you name it, we're more than these things. So when we say protector, we go, okay, I can always be a protector, but I can build into becoming a kingdom operative, someone who specialized with training and then sent to demonstrate the kingdom of God. So we're very passionate about that. Um, but for you, you realize that there was a time in your life, and this is what you're sharing with me, and I kind of want to go down this road now, where there was trauma that you were not even aware of. Mm -hmm. Probably because you were so well-trained, like most of us are, to just block out the noise and to just carry on. Yeah. And whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us at this point, I'd love to just kind of hear from you a little bit about this and um, see how it can help anyone who's listening today. But for anyone who's listening, I promise you this, this is going to be a very powerful moment. 
So uh, listen carefully. Yeah. So, so, here. so I don't have a problem sharing any of it. Um, I'll be an open book because um, men that come out of the background like you and I have, and even men that haven't had this background, we all, um, we all experience wounds and trauma in life. That's what life does to us. And um, there is a pressure uh, to not be open and honest uh, with it. There is this, there is this uh, um, sometimes unspoken, but sometimes it's actually spoken, this, this, this pressure to be the tough guy. Big boys don't cry. Don't let them see you down. I mean, we can pick the cliches. But you're absolutely right, especially for like you and I in, you know, in a profession filled with a bunch of alpha males who are competitive to the nth degree. Um, you don't want to even admit to yourself that you're hurting or you have brokenness in you um, because you're always maintaining a presence that command presence is, 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 uh, it, it never turns off. And it's like, it's like you're presenting to the world a facade on the outside. You look tough as nails and capable and you are, but on the inside you have wounds. All of us do. And, uh, and it took 30 years for me to get to the place where I could admit it to myself recognize it and look in the deepest recesses of my soul to look under the deepest buried rock to the things that I wanted to ignore for forever and ever. So just to give you a little background, yes, I was a crime scene detective in the homicide unit. I would spend hours and hours and hours at a crime scene with dead people who died hideous, violent, gory deaths. And um, some of them were like hard to imagine. And my job was to meticulously document and record all the evidence and, uh, and, you know, everything, including the dead bodies, including the wound patterns, you know, and some of them were just, you know, nothing short of horrific. And I would, and people would come to me after really bad scenes. Are you doing okay? And it would always be, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I did that for three years. Then, in the, in the SWAT team, in the middle of the of my SWAT career, uh, violent crime in Fresno had gotten so out of control that, um, you know, the drive-by shootings, uh, you know, little kids were getting caught up in the crossfire and becoming homicide victims of gang violence. At the same time, there were there were districts or there were neighborhoods in certain districts, particularly the one that I worked where if a lone patrol car drove into the wrong neighborhood by themselves, they'd just start taking sniper fire. The gangs were trying to make a statement that you don't belong here. And I, I'm, I mean, I personally know three friends of mine whose cars were just riddled with gunfire, you know, bullets passing through the passenger compartment in multiple directions and only by the grace of God didn't hit them. And uh, in the middle of that, our chief did something very controversial, very aggressive. He activated our SWAT team full-time. He put us on the street in our GI Joe costumes, looking like special forces operatives with automatic weapons and put us on the street. And our job was to 
take control of the streets back. Stop the bleeding. Stop all this violence. And we had we had one marching, we had two marching orders. One was whatever you do, don't violate the law, don't become a bunch of cowboys, um, do it legally. But department policy is optional and particularly our pursuit policy. We had like most law enforcement agencies, pretty restrictive pursuit policies. They need to be because pursuits represent an inherently dangerous situation to the public. You're exposing the public to, you know, a lot of bad potential outcomes in high-speed pursuits. And um, he pretty much suspended the pursuit policies. If you've got a gang, if you have a known or suspected gang member in that car, if you have a known or suspected armed subject in that car, if you have a known or suspected felon in that car and you go to stop them and, and they take off, you don't, you don't terminate that pursuit. I'm sorry, you don't call that pursuit off. Um, you, you don't quit until you catch them. And if you have to ram them off the road and we did, like a lot. Um, our unit got into a lot of officer-involved shootings and multiple weekly crazy high-speed pursuits that are that you never see in real life in law enforcement. You see those in the movies. This was the closest that law enforcement in my whole career ever came to what you see in the movies. I used to not be able to watch cop movies because I'd constantly be, you know, yelling at the screen. That's not real. They don't do that. That would never happen. And here I was for three years in an environment where it was happening. Um, I also did a stint in, uh, uh, went back to detectives later is in child abuse. And that was hideous. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I'd leave a scene Sometimes at a morgue, um, with a you know, I remember one in particular, just this beautiful little you know about eight year old girl just laying on a steel slab because she's dead, and she's naked, and I'm doing basically I'm I'm examining her for exterior signs of injuries, trauma, any kind of sign of foul play, and she was just the most beautiful little eight-year-old girl I've ever seen in my life. And I remember driving home, or not driving home, driving back to headquarters, probably about a five-mile drive down the freeway, just crying, just weeping like a little baby because it just was so sad. Um, and in the middle of all of that, uh, I went through this really nasty divorce that wrecked me because I saw how much my kids were struggling. And all of that was like compressed into a six or seven year period where one, either one assignment or the other, or one, you know, event or the other, there was just, and I didn't realize it, just massive, massive stress, trauma, subjected to things that people aren't supposed to experience. And, um, the whole time, I was just, I'm okay, I'm good. Uh, no, I'm good, you know. Kept telling myself that and kept telling everybody else else in my life that. Um, then fast forward, um, I wound up being medically retired in 2007, 2008 from injuries that I had accrued um, uh, on duty. 
over the years. And we were able to move halfway across the country. We moved to Texas. But all of our, my wife and I's family were all back in California. And about once a year, we would go back, spend, you know, a week or so visiting family. All of our vacations seemed to kind of go that way just because we, we had left everyone and everything that we knew when we moved. And um, one of those trips that I went back, um, I called up a couple of my SWAT buddies. These are my like inner circle best friends. Um, these guys are, are probably single-handedly, you know, responsible for getting me through those two years of that divorce that, that where I was just beyond depressed. Um, these were the kind of guys on the SWAT team that would, that, I mean, we would talk about during the BCSU days, we, we all really thought that we were going to lose a cop. We were going to, we were going to get into an incident and it could be, it could have been a pursuit. It could have been a shooting, but we were going to lose one of the members of our team. We really felt that way. It was that aggressive. It didn't wind up happening, thank God. But uh, but we were but we talked about it. We were prepared for it, and um, we talked. You know, these guys. We'd talk about if you go down, man, in the hallway. We it doesn't matter what we have to face. We will come get you. That these are my inner circle guys. Where you know, if you go, we go. Kind of a, a relationship. And there's a bond between men. That happens in the in that kind of a scenario that is hard to describe to people who haven't experienced it. So I called a couple of these guys and I said, "Hey, I'm going to be I'm going to be out in Fresno for a week and it's going to cover this weekend. Maybe you, me, and Joe Blow we can get together. You know, go have dinner, go have a few beers or something, and catch up because I hadn't seen him for a long time. So somebody on the other end ran with that and they turned this into a a big SWAT team reunion. So I show up at this restaurant. There's like 30 guys there. All the guys that I worked with during those SWAT years, particularly the violent crime suppression unit era, those three years where it was crazy. And uh, these are guys that I admired. I had a lot of respect for. These were solid men, all of them. Um, good moral character. Some of them really strong in their faith. And uh, as I'm spending the night working the room, catching up with an in individuals, pulling one guy aside and having a, you know, 15 minute conversation with them. I started seeing this reoccurring trend um, that their personal lives were, were a mess. They were, uh, I mean, some of these guys that were strong, strong believers had had multiple affairs, um, had divorced, uh, lost custody of their kids. Other guys that um, had like three DUIs, had become alcoholic, were struggling to just keep their job. You know, at one point in the night, I went back and, and kind of pulled my two closest buddies together. And I was like, what the heck is going on with all these guys? And they looked at me and said, man, don't you know, BCSU, it effed us all up. We're all, we're all screwed up from from what that assignment did to us. It's like, it's like stress or PTSD or some weird thing. And, and, um, and I went back that night when it was all over, I went back to my wife and I told her this story. And uh, I said, the thing that's really, that's really messing me up is why I can't figure out why this never happened to me. 
why was I shielded from all of this? And she looked at me and said, you have got to be kidding. Think about the hell that we have been through, you know, the last 10 years. Think about how many times we've been on the verge of divorce ourselves. And you're really telling me that, that this didn't affect you? And I had my first like aha moment. I went, wow, it did affect me. It did jack me up. And you and my family, my, you know, my, my family unit was the, was the primary victim of it. <clears throat> but what I failed to do at that time, my first aha moment was only a half realization because in my mind, I kept thinking, but thank God I'm through that. Thank God I got through that and I'm on the other side of it. I wasn't willing. I still wasn't willing to look deep, deep, deep inside myself to realize that it, I, I'm still, I'm still being affected by all of that, and therefore affecting the closest people in my life from all that. Because it was like 30 years ago. It was 25. It was like 25 years ago. So, um, it wound up. It wound up coming up again. You know, like this last year, two years have been. You know, my wife and I really struggled in some areas. Um, and my wife had a, you know, kind of a courageous moment when she was just brutally honest with me just about maybe six months ago. And um, she said, one of the things that has hurt me the worst <clears throat> is not that this happened to you, because that the, the fact that it happened to you wasn't your fault. It's, it's the fact that now that it's come to your attention, that you haven't done what it's taken. What it, what it takes to deal with it, to make it better. You're still ignoring, you're still ignoring it. And that was like my second aha moment when I went, oh my gosh, you're right. I haven't gotten through it. I'm not on the other side. Um, I'm still dealing with it, which means that you're still dealing with it. So we went on a kind of a research project to find counselors or therapists or whatever in our area <clears throat> that specialized in trauma, PTSD, those kinds of things. And lo and behold, we found this guy and, and he was such a good match. He's, he's, that's all he does. All he, his whole entire practice is centered around working with people who've experienced major trauma in their life. He's a Christian counselor to boot. Um, and uh, so I'm like, totally excited. He works with first responders, military, you name it. So I pull up his website and in big, bold letters across the top, it says not currently accepting new clients. And I'm like, oh, I feel like all the wind, you know, deflate from my sails. And, um, and I just, I just felt like I, you know, the Holy Spirit was talking to me and said, no, Dave, you don't accept that. Call him anyway. So I did. So the first time I called him, I'd left kind of a short generic message. My name's so-and-so. Here's my number. I'd like to do some work with you. Uh, call me back, you know, to talk about scheduling. And uh, and Holy Spirit, like, tapped me on the shoulder and he get, again. And he said, he said, dude, that wasn't enough. You need to tell him your story. You need to tell him why you want to see him. So I called him back a second time. <clears throat> left a more detailed story with, you know, or a more detailed message with, 
quite a bit of the story that I just laid out to you that kind of painted a picture for him. Oh, and um, and lo and behold, he called he called me back, um, and he said, "Man, that that second voicemail got me. Um, I think we need to talk." So um, I went and saw him. This guy literally, this is just a God thing. It, it really is just a God thing. This guy's booked out eight months in advance, eight solid months in advance. He is booked, no openings. But he said, we need to work together and we need to work together right now. So I'm going to fit you into every crack I have, every cancellation, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to come in early if I have to, stay late if I have to, um, we need to, we need to address some of this stuff. So God bless him for that. Um, so one of the things that he does that I had never heard of before is uh, EMDR uh, treatments, sessions, therapy. I don't know what you call it, but the acronym stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's all about traumatic memories and where they get stored in your brain. Because our memories are actually stored in physical locations in our brain. And our brains are made so that memories of past events are supposed to get stored in like, you know, the prefrontal cortex. Is it's it's like the if if I'm remembering correctly, um, is the is the location where they're supposed to go. But sometimes when we experience severe trauma, those memories get planted in our limbic system, which is our fight or flight syndrome. What's where our fight or flight syndrome comes from. And when memories gets memories get planted there, years later, when a current event, when your mind makes an inappropriate connection between a current event and one of these past traumatic memories, it will throw you immediately into fight or flight syndrome. And so if this is happening in the home, let's say in within your marriage, if that is, if there's a little stress there, you know, and what marriage doesn't have little stress from time to time, you know, this whole, uh, uh, you know, how two people become one flesh. That's, this is a mystery. This is, this is a mystery. And it's always, it's, com it's always continually challenging. How do I love my wife and serve her and, you know, and, and sacrifice for her? How does she do the same and blend two people together into one? Um, there's going to be bumps in the road. And when there are bumps in the road that inappropriately trigger a past memory that has been stored in the limbic system, it will throw you into fight or flight. So in a marriage, that means I'm either moving aggressively forward against my wife, attacking my wife, so to speak, or I'm withdrawing from her and retreating and I'm not engaging. And both are equally negative. Both are, are huge blocks of building intimacy, trust, friendship, connection. They're, they're marriage killers. And this is what we've been struggling with for 23 years. And I'm, I'm talking to this guy and he's telling me, you know, and, and we did two sessions where we just did history mapping. We just literally went back 
through my whole life, all the way back to, you know, childhood, you know, stressful, traumatic memories from childhood. And, um, and then kind of mapped out where these other major traumatic events were leading up to that six, seven year condensed period of just continual high stress, a divorce right in the middle of it. And, um, and he's sitting here going, man, I can, I can just make, I can see the connections. I can connect the dots and I can see what's going on in your brain that, um, all of these memories have wound have wound up being connected to each other in your brain, and your brain has created some neural pathways that that um, that have become like super highways. And your typical responses are just driven by them almost automatically. It's like a car getting on the freeway. It just wants to go the path of least resistance and the fastest movement. It's like a freeway in your brain that um, that has inappropriately connected all of these things and prevents your brain from correctly viewing these as in the past. It pulls them. It pulls your stress response into the present when there's just a little really relatively inconsequential bump in the road between you and your wife it throws you into fight or flight and it's and it's wrecking you know the relationship so so the whole process and i'm and, and i've i've started it i'm not through with it yet so i can't so i can't like report the full you know extent of it but uh, an interesting thing that he that he said that you'll find interesting from you know his work with uh, military guys is um you'll see a, a pretty consistent reoccurring pattern. You know, you just, you just gave me one example. Let's say guys, you know, in a special unit of some kind, you know, five guys go off in a mission in, in Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever back in those days. And, uh, and they get into some, they get into some stuff. They have an encounter, um, but five guys come back, you know, five guys went out, got into a firefight, you, you know, saved the day out there, all five come back, mission accomplished, but one of those five finds himself unable to return to the fight. Like oh. something snapped and nobody understands why, because they didn't lose anybody. They didn't have any casualties. There wasn't an, you know, but something happened and he can't re-engage. And so he'll wind up kind of getting brought to somebody like this guy who who understands these stuff and goes to and, and he they will find time after time after time that the initial kink in your or crack in your psyche that just keeps get pounded up that the, the the stress and traumatic events that come later in life just continual pound on this initial crack in your psyche almost always is something that came from your early childhood. And it doesn't have to be, you know, somebody who experienced terrible, you know, abuse as a child or, or molested or beaten by their father or had, you know, some hideous alcoholic dad, you know, that, you know, some five-year-old kid watched his dad murder his mother. It doesn't have to be anything like that. It can just be something that you're, 
that at that time, at your level of, you know, maturity, your psychological development was a major trauma for you at four or five or 10 or 12. And it, and that memory got stored in the wrong spot. And then when these traumatic events happen, when you are appropriately operating in your fight or flight syndrome in the middle of a firefight, high speed pursuit, an officer involved shooting, whatever, a homicide scene that's just gruesome, you know, blood spatter on the walls and brain matter over here and disemboweled, you know, you know, some of these terrible things pound on that initial crack that happened at four or 10. Well, and inevitably they see this pattern that eventually there'll be a major event of some kind in, you know, midlife that will bust that crack wide open. And you find the guy who can't re who can't reengage with the mission, can't go back out there. Man, that, whoo, that's so interesting because this is, this is what God has put on my heart, right? There's people like you who have seen a whole lot and need to, and are doing reprocessing and, you know, working through that. And then there are a huge majority of people who have regrets of what they didn't get to see, what they didn't get to experience, right? The person at basic training who got hurt and never even got to get to their unit. Oh, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. that is, there's so many stories like and, that and they're and afraid those, to come. And, and, for, and, for some, and for some people, yeah, because of their unique circumstances in their life and their unique personality, those events those things that they missed out on that they wow. desired so deeply and strongly, but couldn't finish seal training because of an injury. Couldn't get into a, you know, a ranger school, washed out a ranger school, whatever can be just as traumatic as, you know, heck, you know, one of my, one of my, shootings that I was involved in, you know, several of mine, we had bullets coming back the other way. It was, it was a, it wasn't just a police shooting. It was a shoot out, <laughs> you know, kind of deal. Yeah, wow. And in two of them, you know, I had rounds that missed me by a foot or inches and one missed me by inches and hit one of my best friends behind me. And just the nature of this engagement, when I, some of the rounds that I fired, I had a, cause the, it was a fluid dynamic moving, you know, engagement. Mm. And at one point I had a beautiful backdrop, you know, I didn't have to worry about, you know, bullets going down range in a city environment, but the guy moved and another set of rounds went off when the behind him was just, the night sky in blackness. And I knew there, there are houses down there. I knew there were other members of my team on the perimeter in that direction. And there was three of us, I think that engaged this guy. Um, uh, and when you find, you know, when you go, it, the whole thing happened in literally a fraction of a second, but <laughs> so many things happened in that condensed time period. When he go when he finally goes down, the threat is 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 removed. 
I hear somebody come over the radio, officer down, officer shot. And I had this moment of terror come over me, thinking that the possibility is that one of my rounds <laughs> missed him and yeah. I shot one of my one of my teammates who was because this guy moved and you know everybody starts out with you know uh, you know an, a, a, an area of responsibility and you know interlocking you know fields of fire and all that kind of stuff but as soon as the you know what hits the fan all the plans go out the window and there was a moment in time when I thought there was a possibility that one of my rounds had hit one of my own guys and mm -hmm. I was I was I, I was overcome with terror. Then I heard the name of the guy that was down and I knew where he was at. He was behind me. And then I felt this over, I, I felt this relief that was almost over. I was almost overjoyed. Then I felt this hideous sense of guilt that I was so happy. Wow. When one of my buddies behind me is shot. Man. I, this the 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 emotional roller coaster went like you know went like this in a matter of two or three seconds you yeah. know and I was like whoa your your head is just spinning from all of it that's man I can't imagine you know and that's the thing for us as protectors we can't always imagine each other's stories but if we can find that common ground that we want to protect and serve and we want to be used today by God to protect and serve again. Because we're talking about like this small percentage of a nation of the world who dedicates themselves to this. Like st it still is just about 1% of people when you bring them all together, law enforcement, military, firefighter, EMS, mm -hmm. uh, ministers, all of it. It's, it's a very small percentage. So we want to serve that 99%, but then we lose our uniform and we lose the service that we belong to. So now we've got to learn how to get new missions. Unfortunately, um, we got to wrap up, but this has just been unbelievable, man. Thank you so much, Dave. I see such a, a great relationship and friendship here. Um, I yeah. do have a question for you, though. Yeah, we need we need to we need to continue, and uh, and we can you know I I have no problem if you want to do a follow up when I'm yeah. through when I when I've been through all of the EMDR sessions, and uh, I I would have no problem sharing what that experience was like and you know, just really just be an open book of memories and how, and how some things from my childhood, because we all have some things from our childhood that now as an adult, we look back and we think, well, I was just a kid. I was just a kid. I didn't know any better that yes. I was crying in my bedroom that night, but we don't realize that crying in your bedroom, that to put crying to yourself to sleep in your bedroom that night because of X, Y, Z, whatever it was, could have been a moment where you got a kink, you got a crack in your psyche right then, and that every reoccurring traumatic event through the rest of your life has been hammering on that same crack, and that you're vulnerable. You're mm. vulnerable to that thing blowing wide open. You're vulnerable to the fact that you you may have been making a bunch of inappropriate neural connections in your brain, storing some memories in some wrong spots. And it could be now affecting you even now, 30 years after you were in the service or 30 th years after you were, you know, doing whatever. One thing I want to say though, uh, about your last comment before we leave, and we can talk about this later if you want as well. When we leave the service or we leave our profession that has been the center of our identity for so many years 
um, that can be a huge traumatic event that people don't recover from. And there was a time in my life, <clears throat> um, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, that uh, I caught I caught news of a, of, a, of a guy that I knew that I work with that had committed suicide. And I stopped and I thought, and I took a moment and I said, man, there's been a lot of guys I've known that that, that has happened to. And I started literally counting. I went all the way back to the beginning of my law enforcement career. And I count, I started making a tally of the number of people that I had actually worked with on the same department not just cops in California, not just cops in the Central Valley, but people that I knew that worked on the same, you know, shift as I did, same in the same district as I did, that had committed suicide over the years. And I stopped at 10 because it was too depressing. I don't know if there's more. Yeah. I just, I got to 10 and for some reason I said, I got to quit. This is ugly. Um, and many of those, not all of them, but probably the majority of them was when they couldn't transition to civilian life after their after their retirement and they lost their identity as that protector their primary role that they had poured their whole entire life into yeah their identity was the badge the gun on my hip and that's all taken away now well, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, just know that we must continue mission. No matter what happens, we continue mission. We keep moving forward. The mission doesn't end when we get out of our branch of service. Whether this is military, law enforcement, firefighter, EMS, ministry, you name it, the mission continues. Go out, make disciples, spread the kingdom of God, teach it to others, live that life, radiate with a contagious confidence using the KO strategy. And no matter what happens, you continue mission. Now, for those who you've seen some of our swag and you've you know been excited, you want to grab a hat, a t-shirt, a hoodie, that's going to be available to you now. So I'm excited to tell you this. But if you go to koswag.com, you can grab yourself some apparel. And uh, man, it's just so great to be able to finally share that with you. We've kept that internal to those who've trained with us um, to the most part. But now we have partnered up with some great companies to be able to get the products directly to your house. So go to koswag.com today and grab yourself some KO swag. All right, we'll see ya.